Good morning. Good morning. I'm Joel, and I'm so glad that you're all here. Welcome to you who are, us, who are visiting us online. Hope you can join us in person soon date. Today we're going to be considering Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Uh, please turn there in your Bibles, on your devices. We also have it printed in our bulletins. As you turn there, I want to help us lean into this text with an event that took place on October 30th, 1974. It happened in a stadium in Zaire, the capital city, before 60,000 live and about a billion people worldwide. The event was called the Rumble in the Jungle. In one corner of the boxing ring stood George Foreman, recent gold medalist, and he was also the heavyweight champion of the world. 25 years old in his prime. The man in the other corner, he was once seen as great, but not anymore. He'd had his title stripped from him at age 32. He's years removed from his prime, from his title fight days. Most saw this underdog as a hopeless has-been to the favored foreman. And it was no surprise when the bell sounded and foreman dominated this man from the opening bell. By the second round, this man was literally on the ropes, taking a nonstop pummeling as big foreman, his powerful haymakers, rained down on his body. For seven rounds, this man seemed completely outmatched and all but defeated. If you were watching, you'd be wondering, what was he even hoping to accomplish? As he simply took this pounding, offering little in the way of any counterattack, any response, some of you are smiling because you know about this match and things were not as they seemed. This man who allowed himself to be pounded on for seven long rounds, his name was Muhammad Ali. And he had formulated a plan to defeat Foreman. He called it the rope-a-dope, the rope-a-dope. He simply avoided the knockout punch and let Foreman pound on him, wear himself out, for seven rounds. So when Foreman did connect with a hard shot in the seventh, Ali whispered in his ear, that all you got, George? George actually reported later on, at this point he realized this fight was not what he thought it was at all. It was not what it seemed. Because in the eighth round, Muhammad Ali then came out swinging and he knocked out the fatigued Foreman Muhammad Ali used what seemed like total defeat to all who were watching, and he turned total defeat into an amazing victory, one of the greatest victories in boxing history. We're about to read Luke 22. And the round one bell has just sounded for Jesus Christ. And things are going to start looking really bad for Jesus. But friends, don't feel sorry for Jesus. Jesus is in complete control, and he has a plan, a plan to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat for his glory and for our good. Are you ready to rumble? Let's read our text. Starting in verse 63 of Luke 22. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy. Who is it that struck you? 
And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we're, our time is short, our need is great. Will you do something in these mere moments we have that might result in something momentous going forward in our lives? Make the preacher go away and show us our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've been looking at the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. And as I've dwelt in this passage, I found it gut-wrenching. Jesus' intimate evening with his bosom buddies went southward pretty fast. In turn, Jesus is double-crossed, deserted, then denied by disciples. It ended with him being illegally arrested and utterly abandoned. And now, as we read... Heaped onto isolation is insult, injury, interrogation, illegal indictment, but he's declared innocent. Praise God, no, not so fast. The not guilty is neglected by a no good governor looking to negotiate. Jesus is simply a political bargaining chip for Herod. Jesus is alone, he's on the ropes, and his enemies are closing in to destroy him. Jesus is on the path to utter rejection. So I ask you, we just read this together, what is your response to Jesus being on the path to utter rejection? Are we tempted to pity Jesus? Friends, Jesus doesn't want any of our pity. Don't pity Jesus. Joel, what does Jesus want us to understand then? Jesus wants us to see in this text that his torture and trial exposes not his guilt, but ours, but ours. It is your rebellion and mine that led to his rejection. That's the bad news. 
Anybody want some good news? Here's the good news. Jesus' seeming defeat was part of his perfect plan to redeem us. His perfect plan to redeem us. Jesus was utterly rejected so he could be our ultimate redeemer. That's our point today. Jesus was utterly rejected so he could be our ultimate redeemer. Praise be to Jesus. Now you may be saying, Joel, what is a redeemer and and why do I need one? Well, a redeemer is someone who rescues, who ransoms, and then restores someone who lost their rights. You and I, we're born in a world of sin and misery, right? And it doesn't feel right, does it? Don't we get upset when we hear about sickness, someone breaking their neck, murder? How about child abuse? How do you feel about that? How about war? How do you feel about death? Death of a loved one. We get upset, right? Because deep down we know that our normal isn't normal. That's why you feel that way. We weren't made to struggle for ever-diminishing pleasures and then die. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they lived in a perfect world. We can't even imagine with none of that. Can you imagine? None of the stuff we see today. That was Adam and Eve's world, but what did they do? They rebelled against God, and we lost our rights, and we ended up all wrong. Satan was given at that point the keys to our planet. And sin and death, these cosmic invaders, entered in and began their reign over this planet. But God had a plan to bring restoration by sending a redeemer who would be man like us, but who is also fully God. Jesus, the Son of God, in love for you, because he loved you, he came to lay down his life. And that is the good news for us today. Jesus came to destroy your sin and your shame. Jesus suffered to save your soul. His plan was to redeem the ruined. And Jesus' redemption is relevant whether you've been a Christian for many years or whether you're with us today and you're exploring Christianity. Now we have three scenes here, and the reason I chose these three scenes, I know we're covering a little more scripture than normal, is because our catechism teaches us how as our Redeemer, Jesus came to become our prophet, our priest, and our king. And each scene shows how Jesus is actually rejected in turn in each of these roles, but each rejection is going to reverse and boomerang back because it is God's wise plan to turn utter redemption, utter rejection into our ultimate redemption. So let's look at scene one. Jesus rejected as our prophet. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? I read this and it took me back to my schoolyard days. Maybe some of you (laughs) remember how cruel boys can be to a weak child. Maybe you were that child. You know, girls can be cruel too. Maybe not so much with muscle, but with mocking words that hurt. That old rhyme about sticks and stones is like the biggest lie I think ever perpetrated in our culture. Words can wound in ways that wreck us. Some of you know this. Jesus knows this. Jesus is now enduring both forms of abuse, the beating and the mocking. We don't know who these mockers are. They're just some bullies, some hired hands. And you know what happens when one person kicks down another? Others jump in, 
for the love of it or because they don't want to be seen as the weak one there. And they had heard about this Jesus. So they play a cruel blind prophet game. Hey, put a bag on Jesus' head. You say that you're a seer? How's your vision now, Jesus? Prophesy, who just punched you in your face, Jesus? Ha ha. The Greek tense here actually indicates that this mocking and this striking are repeated actions. This went on all night long. We readers know that Jesus actually is the true prophet, silently taking it. Earlier this night, Jesus had prophesied Judas would betray him. Next, he told Peter that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. Oh, and don't forget, Peter's in full sight outside in the courtyard. At some point, the cock crows. Another prophecy fulfilled. Can you imagine being Peter after that third denial, seeing his Lord looking at him, face now bloodied by those mocking his prophetic abilities? Oh, and Peter would remember at this moment, Jesus had prophesied this beating that was coming too. You see these men who beat and mock our prophet are actually fulfilling his plan. There's an irony that they're the ones who are blindfolded, unable to see what our prophet came to do. Our catechism teaches us that Jesus as our prophet reveals to us the will of God for our salvation. And Jesus told his disciples right before his arrest, that it was prophesied that he must be numbered with the transgressors in order to save them. So let me ask you, do you know what this means? Jesus is saying in order to be saved by him, you have to see yourself as a sinner. That's entirely possible that you're shutting down right now. Pastor Joel, you do this every week. You send all this negative energy my way. Why can't you offer some more positive thinking about myself? I hear you, and I do become a Debbie Downer. Let me take that back before I get a beat down, Debbie beat down from. I must be a Donnie Downer. This text demands it if I'm going to preach it faithfully. This text calls us to be disappointed in ourselves. Why did Jesus endure this beating, this mocking? For us. We're the ones that deserve this. And you have to dig low if you're ever going to build high in your Christian life. You have to dig low, as J.C. Ryle says. So let's dig. Verse 65. And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Have you ever said anything against Jesus? Have you ever blasphemed him? We live in a culture that uses Jesus and God's name like a common curse word all the time. You ever done that? Use God's name in vain? Have you gotten used to it where it doesn't even bother you anymore when others do? Do you stop and pray, God have mercy on that soul when you hear them say it? Do you pray for those who misrepresent Jesus Christ? you realize that one day every one of these jokers who blindfolded Jesus will stand before him? And you know what he's going to say? Jesus is going to say, Bob, I knew it was you. You were the first one to strike me. And he'll say to folks that we know, every time you spoke my name wrongly 
or misrepresented me, I heard it. And he's going to say to us, every time you misrepresented me, I saw you. That day is drawing near, by the way. We're one day closer. What will Jesus say to you on that day? Wonderfully, that day is not today. Which means Jesus actually had a different plan for you. Jesus has lots of plans. A plan for you to come and hear how Jesus suffers blasphemers gladly to save blasphemers. That's the good news. You actually probably didn't think that was Jesus' plan this morning. I'm guessing some of us didn't think that. You thought it was your plan to come to Heart City Church. You woke up, right? You got cleaned up. You got in your car. You drove over here, walked through the doors. That was your plan, right? Yes. But it was also Jesus' plan for you to be here, to give you life one more day on this earth, to wake you up, to give you the desire to come here. Jesus gave that to you. Oh, and it was Jesus' plan to plant a church here, nearby your house. It was his plan for you to hear through some weak fellow in a purple shirt how much Jesus loves you and how he came to be numbered with the sinners because of that. Jesus loves you, friends, and made a plan to speak to you, to bring you out of your sin and misery. And all you have to do is take hold of him, confess your failures to speak rightly of him. And he's going to embrace you like you've never been loved before. Some of us need some love this morning. Jesus has it. And he's going to start transforming you from a disappointment into a disciple and bring you in his, into his glorious kingdom to be with him forever. But you first have to discover how far you've drifted if you're to delight in the destination. You have to see how far you've drifted. And those who hope in him will not be put to shame. You will not be put to shame on that day. Isn't that the best promise? Amen? Let's put a wrap on scene one. And now we'll see the silent prophet turns into the speaking priest in scene two. Verse 66, when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. Now, you may be wondering how I see Jesus as priest in this scene. You realize that on the great day of atonement, the day before the great day of atonement, all the other priests were required to keep the high priest up all night. And that's exactly what they've done here to Jesus. And first thing in the morning, all the religious leaders, both from the right and the left, liberals and conservatives, come together. And that's significant too. Because you need a full assembly in order to condemn a high priest. They've gathered to get Jesus to say something in order to get him hanged by Pilate. I'm certain that none of these religious leaders were thinking this is the high priest at the time. And that's because they too are blindly aiding God's plan to save mankind. Because you see, we need a sinless high priest who also becomes the sacrifice for our sins. Our catechism says, Christ as priest offered himself up once as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. And he continually intercedes for us. He's constantly praying. God established priests as mediators between sinful people and himself. None of us can go straight to God. They would go to God on people's behalf to restore the relationship that was broken. That's what priests did. They would offer sacrifices and then ask God to show mercy. I know. Sacrifices and priests, uh, 
These are foreign to us sophisticated modern people, right? But we do understand that when people break the law or sin, justice is required, right? We all get that. And the greater the sin, the greater the penalty. But more important, the greater the one sinned against, the greater the penalty. That's something we have to keep in mind. It's not that your sins are so great. It's rather the one you've sinned against is. He's infinite, holy, God almighty. How can you repair the damage that you've done when you've offended him? We need a sacrifice of infinite value to pay back an infinite God, right? That's why Jesus came to be both the high priest and the sacrifice. A plan unfolding before this council because they want Jesus to confess he is the Christ. And he says to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I answer, ask you, you will not answer. Jesus doesn't simply say yes. Why not? He sees they're trying to pin him in a corner, right? So he opens his mouth to make crystal clear their unbelief. You're already rejecting me. I don't need to tell you that. They chose not to believe him from the start. No amount of evidence is going to persuade. And he asks, and if he asks them why you're asking the question, well, they're not going to tell him. Jesus sees through their designs. This is why they arrested him at night and set up this kangaroo court. First thing in the morning, because they want to get him condemned as fast as possible before word gets out to the public. And then Jesus comes off the ropes and gives them a warning shot with his bold profession in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. What do you think of that response of Jesus to them? see a few heads nodding. Actually, I think some of us here may not think much of that at all. Let's just be real. That's because we don't know our Bible very well. And I'll say what I say every week. A whole Christian needs their whole Bible. And if I'm going to be known for anything as pastor here, it's going to be as a pastor who loved you enough to tell you that you need to know God's word if you want to know your Savior, Jesus Christ. Do you want to understand Jesus and how much he loves you? then you've got to be in your Bible. And if you're in your Bible, praise God, keep it up. Keep it up. I'm done with that diatribe. But our homework this week, I got some, is to read Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 about the Son of Man. And I'll say R because I'm going to read it as well. If I'm going to tell you to do it, I'm going to read it as well. And by the way, when you read Daniel 7, it's really cool. It's kind of like a Marvel movie or one of these neat action things because you have all these beasts like coming out of the sea and they got all kinds of animal parts and everything. Read it. It's straight stretching for your imagination. And towards the end of that section, you're going to read about the Son of Man ascending up to heaven and being seated at the right hand of God. And he's going to be given authority over all nations and court will take place where all are judged. Now do you see what Jesus has said? Jesus is saying to these people who've just accused him, you have the power to judge me during this hour, but afterwards you're going to stand before me. You're going to face my power, and I'm going to judge you. That's the end game of this. That's what he's telling them. And that message comes through loud and clear. These guys actually know Daniel 7. They put two and two together and they say, oh, so you are saying you're the son of God then. And he said to them, you say that I am. 
The answer is remarkable. Jesus is saying, you came to that conclusion. Are you going to run with it? You say that ego me, I am. Use that to condemn me, if you will. You will be killing the Son of God for claiming to be who he says he is. And then they said, what further testimony do we need? <laughs> we have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And they end the investigation right there. That's rather abrupt, don't you think? But all they wanted was a conviction. They're not looking for justice here. They're not looking to explore. What further testimony do they need? These guys decide blasphemy. This is blasphemy. And that's all they need to reject Jesus as priest. So they take this evidence to the authorities in our third scene. Or wait, do they? Listen. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. What just happened here? The charge against Jesus was blasphemy, right? But the charges they bring are rebellion, fostering tax evasion, and claiming kingship. Notice how they went from a religious charge to a political charge. And that's because Jesus is also showing us that we need a redeemer who is also our king, who brings us under his power, who rules and defends us, and restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies. That's what a king does. Now, Pilate, he's actually wise to these religious leaders. He was thinking like Han Solo when they asked him about Lando Calrissian. These guys have no love for the empire. Sorry, old Star Wars thing stuck in my head. He's saying, why are you now coming forward as the champions of the Roman Empire? Really? That's why Pilate then turns to Jesus and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? But not like that. The first word in the Greek here is you. Jesus is standing there, a bloody mess. He does not look kingly at all. No one could look less kingly at this moment. Pilate says, you, the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. See, Jesus just did the same thing he did earlier. He says, you have just said, I am a king. It is true. Now that you know that, Pilate, what are you going to do with it? And we see what Pilate does. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. This is the most important statement. There is only one real hero in the Bible and all in human history. The best legal system on the planet at this time finds no guilt in Jesus. Zero. And yet by the end of this chapter, it's going to put the only innocent man to ever live on the cross. Do you see why we need a better king, a, a better government? Anybody like to have a better government? <laughs> I got a little action now, all right. Ironically, it's actually going to take a Roman cross to establish it. Because, my friends, you need to understand who your true enemies are, sin, death, and the devil. They're the ones who wrecked us and who wrecked our world. And they're the ones that this king came to conquer at the cross. And I know it doesn't seem like this defeated, beaten-up Jew is able to conquer them. 
especially by dying on a cross. Really, does that look like a victory? (laughs) But friends, things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem. You see, Jesus, yes, he's going to be lying flat on his back on day seven, at the end of the seventh day. But when the bell dings for the eighth, (laughs) the king will have delivered a knockout punch. I'm looking forward to Easter. Anybody else? The resurrection of our Lord Jesus, when he conquers our last enemy death. Of course, may I back up? This can't happen unless Pilate changes his mind, which he does. Verse 5, but they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. I know that at this point, Jesus' trial has exposed that our blasphemies and our sins are the reasons Jesus went to the cross. Here's my question for you. Do you ever realize that your indifference, your indifference put Jesus on the cross as well? Let me read a poem called Indifference. When Jesus came to Golgotha, they hanged him on a tree. They drove great nails through hands and feet and made a calvary. They crowned him with a crown of thorns. Red were his wounds and deep. For those were crude and cruel days, and human flesh was cheap. When Jesus came to Elkhart, they simply passed him by. They would not hurt a hair of him. They only let him die. For men had grown more tender, and they would not give him pain. They only passed down the street and left him in the rain. Much of our community is pretty indifferent to Jesus, leaving him in the rain like Pilate does here. So let's close by considering Pilate and his indifference. Pilate's a shrewd guy. He got to his position because he's a smart fellow. He's wise to what the Jews are up to here. The charges are blatantly false. Jesus never incited rebellion. If Pilate had his spies doing any work, they would have heard Jesus in the temple saying, no, you pay your taxes. Pilate doesn't care that Jesus is a king, so long as Jesus' rule doesn't threaten him in any way. Pilate's only concern is his kingdom, Rome, and Jesus poses no threat. So he declares Jesus not guilty, but then they persist. And Pilate punts. Pilate punts. He hears Jesus is a Galilean, and he decides to let Herod feel Jesus. Why doesn't he do the right thing? He knows he's innocent. Why is Pilate indifferent? He's intelligent enough to know Jesus is innocent, but he's indifferent because he doesn't want interference with his own life. So he rejects the king by punting Jesus away so he can get back to his life. And that's what I want to leave us with today. And I speak to you as intelligent people. Jesus came to redeem fallen mankind. He gave his life for you. He doesn't want your pity. He wants you to hate your sin that is cross-cured and to take in his incredible love and then let him rule your heart. Will you remain indifferent to Jesus today after hearing this and punt him down the road this week?
Will we walk out of here indifferent to our king and what he has done for us? Let me ask you, in worship ends, we quickly change the subject with the people here and talk about that you ball game that's on later today. Or what's for lunch. Or the weather. Sunny day. Or other trivial things. Indifferent to everything we just heard right now. Now there's nothing wrong with lunch or sports or any of those other things. Let me ask you though, what is your priorities? Where are your priorities? I'm not speaking to all of us. Some of us here are not indifferent at all. Praise be to God. I know this. Some of us here today, we've just seen a new facet of Jesus' beauty, and we're excited about that, and we're loving Jesus more than ever right now at this moment. And you can't wait to share it with somebody here, something you discovered about Jesus. You're excited. And you want to say, hallelujah, what a Savior. Joel, why didn't we sing that song? You're ready to talk to a brother or sister who you know has been struggling with one of the things we've talked about here, or maybe you're struggling with it, and you're saying, going to say, hey, please pray for me about this because I'm struggling this week. And I know Jesus is a good Savior. Help me to take that in. To all of you who are right there, I say bravo. Keep it up. Let's continue to let the gospel of Jesus Christ shape us. But others of us need to wake up, myself included, and start talking more about our Savior, sharing our sins, the places where we will admit Jesus, King Jesus isn't ruling my heart here. He's not ruling in my home here. He's not ruling in my neighborhood there. I see my neighbors. And start asking others to pray for us and for others. And maybe, just maybe, if those starts of conversations begin and cause us to look to Jesus, maybe God might start a revival in our own hearts. I like the sound of that. Wouldn't that be great? The choice is ours. Let's not be indifferent to Jesus Christ because nobody has ever loved us more or better. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful plan. <laughs> you have executed it to perfection. And we are just amazed that you, our great creator, would love us so much. We look around at our world and we look in the mirror and we see things are not the way they should be. But we know that our King Jesus has had victory at the cross. So right now we come to you and ask and pray that you will send your spirit a new measure and allow your spirit to apply these words to our hearts and lives, that we may not be indifferent, that we may not speak wrongly, that we may see our sins and repent of them, and we may experience the great love you have for us in new ways. Make us a community of faith that shines like stars in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation, because we want to glorify Jesus and make him known. Jesus, you are so bold to boldly profess to those who made you suffer. May we do the same knowing that you're smiling on us the whole time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.